We read Philippians chapter 4 in the series Sin and Judgment. The series Sin and Judgment is meant to highlight aspects of sin and judgment in the New Testament in this part of the Bible where people think that little is said about sin and judgment. The Old Testament certainly does, but they say the New Testament does not say much about it. We will find that that is the opposite. And now we're in chapter 4 of Philippians. Philippians 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, so stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true comrade, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. The Apostle Paul 
has some concluding words here in chapter 4. In verses 1 to 3, he's speaking of working with each other instead of being in conflict with each other. Working with each other instead of being in conflict with each other. This is in verses 1 to 3. In verse 1, he addresses the Philippians as my beloved brethren, my beloved. They are beloved because they are showing the fruit of the work of Christ in them. Christ is God's beloved Son, and those who are found truly to be in Him are also beloved one to another, but especially beloved by God. God loves us because of our relationship to Christ. He commends them to because of what they have been producing. He says, whom I long to see. He longs to see them, and he's calling them my joy and crown. This is the kind of joy or delight they bring to him because he sees the fruit of the gospel in them. He would not say this if they were reckless and careless, if they were passive, if they were inactive, if they were stagnant in their Christian faith. He would not be saying this. So this shows that we must have this kind of fruit bearing in our life for us to be joy and a crown to those who teach us. We have to have that. If we don't have that, then we are woefully lacking. So as they are that way to him, so far, he says, so stand firm in the Lord. It's easy to slip back. It's easy to backslide. It's easy to go back to our old sins. But here, instead of doing that, he says, stand firm in the Lord. Remember in chapter 3, verses 12 to 16, he has emphasized the fact that we must not only stand firm, keep the same standard, verse 16, but increase from that standard. Don't go back, but go forward. And if we are to go forward, we must stand firm in the Lord, in the things of God. Verses 2 and 3. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. These are two names, and the names being feminine are likely the names of two women. Two women, presumably, who have had strife with each other who have had contention with each other, who have had to learn how to relate to each other in the Lord. And he says here, I urge. It's an urgent matter for them to get reconciled, for them to do what's right. Not to seek after their own interests, but the interests of others, even the one with whom they have a conflict. This is one of the applications of what he said in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let Each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And the supreme example of that is Christ in verses 5 to 11. 
Christ was unselfish in His devotion and sacrifice for us. In the same way, these two women, sisters in Christ in the local church, are exhorted, they are urged to live in harmony in the Lord. In the Lord. Not to seek after their own desires, their own selfish ambition, their own interests, but the interests of Christ. Verse 3. Indeed, true comrade, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He addresses them as true comrade. A true comrade. These days, this word comrade is usually um, exclusively used by communists to refer to one another. But in the Bible, and generally speaking, they have hijacked the word, but otherwise it has to do with fellow workers and companions with a common purpose. And in that way, we all are that with each other. We are to be true comrades, not false ones. True companions, true friends, not false ones. When we are false, then we're not true. There's the opposite, right? It's either true or it's false. And if it's false, then it's sin. And if there's sin, there's going to be judgment. If there's disharmony, there's going to be judgment. If there is lack of growth, there's going to be judgment. So instead of that, he says, help these women. I ask you also to help these women, help these women get along because they have shown some fruit in the past because they shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. They did show fruit in the past, so don't give up on them. Pursue them and help them to get along with each other. And also, Clement. Clement, this is a man's name. Clement is a participant in working together in harmony to accomplish the Lord's work. Not only them, but the unnamed ones. He says, the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. All of these together... The Apostle Paul has confidence that their names are in the book of life. But why does he have this confidence? Because of their fruit. Not because he has some secret knowledge that God told him, okay, of all of the hundreds or all of the thousands of people who heard the gospel in the city of Philippi, you, Paul, I'm telling you of the thousands There are 552 of them, and these are their names. These are the ones whose names are in the book of life. Most likely that did not occur. So when he says whose names are in the book of life, he's saying it on the basis of the evident fruit in their life up to that point. He's saying it on that basis, not because he has some special esoteric secret knowledge from God saying that these people, the named and unnamed ones, are in the book of life. But, if their names are in the book of life because of what godliness he has seen in them, how about everybody else? Their names are not in the book of life. And how can we know if somebody's name is in the book of life or not in the book of life? By how he lives. If his life comports with the word of God. If his life does not comport with the Word of God, he is not in the book of life. When the books are open, 
the book of life will not have his name recorded. It's either in there or it's not in there. Verses 4 to 7. 4 to 7. A call to rejoice. With rejoicing and prayers with thanksgiving come peace. Peace comes. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the God of peace, which surpasses all comprehension, and sorry, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There is cause to rejoice. This is a common verb or a common noun in this letter, along with joy, as we saw in verse 1. These are common words here. How can one have true joy or true rejoicing, true peace, have his anxieties removed? Only if it is focused on the Lord. He says, in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice on the basis of what he has accomplished for us. Rejoice in the fact that he has eternal life in store for us. When we die, we have the assurance that we will be with the Lord. We also rejoice that he's with us so that whatever we experience day by day is not experienced alone. We're not loners in the world because if Christ is with us, like he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. If that's the case, go therefore make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If we are rejoicing in the Lord because he is with us, he'll take care of us. No obstacle is insurmountable. We can conquer through him who loved us. We should rejoice in that. Don't let the stress of life, don't let the distresses of life, don't let the uncertainties of life, any hardship overwhelm us if we're focused on Him. Of course, by means of the Word of God and prayer. The Word of God and prayer. He's going to be mentioning prayer here in verses 6 and 7. Earlier in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 16, he said, holding fast the word of life. Holding fast the word of life. The word of life and the prayers to God, these are our means of comfort. These are our means of consolation. These are our means of removing all anxieties. Verse 5. We must have a forbearing spirit. Forbearance or patience. We ought to have a spirit of patience that is able to endure all afflictions, that's able to endure all hardships, all persecutions, all uncertainties, anything in life, we should have a spirit that is patiently awaiting God to act as He so chooses. 
And this ought to be evident to all men. People should know the difference whether you are anxious about something or forbearing it, if you are patient about it, if you are tolerating it in your spirit. Because if you are not able to do it inside, it's going to show on the outside. It's going to show in your face. It's going to show in your demeanor. It's going to show in your words, in your actions. It's going to show in different ways like this. So either we are forbearing all hardships or we're not. And people will know. And it's important for people to know. Why? Not because we're boasting, but because they need to be encouraged. If, if we can undergo intense affliction and undergo it in the Lord, that will help others to be encouraged by the example. He is speaking of using examples because he says in verse 9, he says, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace shall be with you. It's necessary for us to do so, not only for our own stability, for our own faith, for our own peace of mind, but also to help others, to be an example to others. And then when they have a distress, and usually this is the case, the, the hardship of someone else is most often going to be more difficult than our own hardship. If we remove introspection and if we look outward and look at the needs of others, it will help us to overcome our own anxieties. That's what we have to be about. He says the Lord is near, like we said. Christ is in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Right? Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is near. So if he is near, he is going to be helping us. And this nearness is not only nearness in terms of indwelling us and helping us through our circumstances, but he's also near in terms of his return. We're supposed to be thinking of him in terms of his return. Either we die or the Lord returns. And in terms of his return, we ought to say, like in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, Maranatha, which is an Aramaic word transliterated into English, meaning, O Lord, come. We anticipate his coming. We anticipate it. We expect it. We want him to come soon because when he comes, he'll deliver us from this present evil age. Six, be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Be anxious for nothing. Think about that. Be anxious for nothing. But, we might say, I have a valid reason. But you don't know my circumstances. But you don't know my upbringing. But you don't know how evil that person is. But you don't know my personality. But you don't know my heart. People say that, right? They make excuses for being anxious. Well, some people are more anxious than others. We can't do that. Right here he says, be anxious for nothing. Yes, we might have that initial 
surge of anxiety, but then we have to beat it down by trusting in His Word, by praying to God and giving it to God. And according to the moment, according to the occasion, handle it with the wisdom of God the best that we can. But not be entrapped and enslaved to anxiety. It's not permitted here at all. Even Jesus said that in reference to our daily needs. Matthew 6, 25 to 34. He mentions that as well. We're not supposed to be anxious for anything. Instead of being anxious, instead of being worried, uh, a, a worry wart, being a worrisome person, he says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Instead of being anxious, he says, in everything, so there's the opposite. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, the opposite way, every single thing. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Yes, we can petition God. Yes, we can ask Him. Yes, we can plead with Him. We can have our requests. But notice, He says, with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. Whenever our prayers are preoccupied with God, I want this. God, I need that. Why, God, have you not answered me? Why, God, is this happening to me? Whenever we're thinking like that, we are preoccupied with the dilemma before us without understanding it in context, in context to what God has already given to us, what God has already promised us, what God already says He will do for us. That's why it has to be with with thanksgiving always. Is that not characteristic of believers? If we, if we notice the prayers of believers compared to unbelievers, believers are constantly thanking God. In fact, at the beginning, in the middle, at the end of their prayers, they're always saying something to the effect of thanking God. Thank you, God, for this day. Thank you, God, for this meeting. Thank you, God, for the people of God. Thank you, God, for your word. They're always thanking God for something. That's the way it should be. Always. Whether we do it alone or we do it in a group, we ought to be thanking God. As well, we notice that we should make them known to God. Some people think, well, my need is petty. My decision is not a big deal. God is busy with the big issues of life. He is busy making sure there's not a third world war. Why should he be concerned about me? You know, we think like that. He doesn't care, or I don't need to ask him for everything. I don't need to petition him for everything. But here he says to make them known to God. We should. If we're not making them known, then what's the case? We are acting according to our own wisdom. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. We have to make known everything to Him. 7. We have the promise of the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
The peace of God is that which surpasses all human comprehension. It not only surpasses the comprehension of unbelievers, it also surpasses our own comprehension. We sometimes will even be amazed at the peace God gives to us individually in a particular predicament. Or if we are praying for somebody else and somebody else has the peace of God and we are amazed that he's able to handle whatever is happening to him. It is beyond our comprehension because our comprehension is carnal. It's fleshly. It's finite. It's weak. We don't have the ability to understand what God's doing, how he's going to do it, and, and how he will succeed in what he does. So when we receive this peace, the result, it guards us. It's our protector. Peace is our protector. If we don't have the peace of God, then we are susceptible to unbelief. We are susceptible to sin. We're susceptible to falling away. But when we have his peace, he guards our hearts and our minds. Both our hearts and our minds. It's both affective and it's both and intellectual. He's going to give us peace. We're going to be reasonable. We're going to be thinking clearly. And also, we're not going to be overwhelmed in our heart or soul with anxiety. Verses 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. This final exhortation is for us to meditate on what is true. Whatever is true. Well, where are we going to find everything that's true, reliably, from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation? The Bible. That's where we're going to find it. So whatever we must do in every difficulty, we should have our minds dwelling on the true word of God, on the word of truth, the gospel. Colossians 1.5. The message of truth, the gospel. Ephesians 1.13. So the truth of the word of God. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 17. Whatever is honorable. Where are we going to find whatever is honorable? In the word of God also. And then its application in the life of Christians. We're going to see the honorable word of God producing honorable people. Respectable people. Whatever is right, where will we find this? Also in the Bible. Whatever is right or righteousness, the word of righteousness. Hebrews 5, 11 to 14. It's called the word of righteousness. We're going to find it here. And to the extent that it is properly applied in the life of other Christians. Whatever is pure, where will we find this? In the word also. And as well, 
in those who are correctly, accurately, both believing it and living it. Whatever is lovely. Where are we going to find this? Same thing. Both in the word and in the life of others who are obeying this word. Whatever is of good repute. Good repute. A reputation. Having a good reputation. A good reputation is for others to understand what is commendable and what is uncommendable. And also not only in the church, but outside. We can't have unbelievers looking at Christians and saying, well, those people say they're Christians. Those people say they believe the Bible. However, I see them committing all these other sins, these sins and these crimes. How can they be Christians and be such notorious criminals? No, it can't be that way. There is a contradiction. If there is any excellence, this, ex, this term excellence, we find it first in the Old Testament in reference to certain women, like in the book of Ruth. She is called a woman of excellence. Also in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 31, 10 to 31. A woman of excellence is mentioned there as well. But this excellence has to do with excellent character. Not excellent wit, excellence, um, ability to speak, a winsome speaker, or excellence in beauty. These are not the aspects of anyone's character, whether man or woman, that the Bible means by this. It's talking about having excellent character, being a virtuous person, whether man or woman. Worthy of praise. Isn't the apostle praising the Philippians? Isn't he commending them? Is he, did he not do so to the Ephesians as well? Did he not do so even to the Galatians, though he's rebuking them? They were in certain ways commended. And the same with the Corinthians. They had many problems in their church, much sin in their church, yet he did see some fruit in them, and at least some fruit in some of them, that he commended them. He praised them. He says that in 1 Corinthians 11. Now I praise you that you follow me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions delivered to you. Okay, so when we praise one another, that is a good thing. But here he's not talking about flattery. By praise, he's not talking about flattery. Flattery in terms of the Bible. Flattery is saying something to someone else, commending somebody for something, but you're either exaggerating it and you're sincerely or, or maliciously exaggerating it or you don't really mean it. Sometimes it's both. You don't really mean it. It's not really true of the other. You're exaggerating it about someone else. This is flattery. But when it is true, when it's right, when it's sincere then it is praiseworthy. And we should not be averse to doing that. When someone does something praiseworthy, we should say so. Whether in private or in public or both, whatever the occasion requires. Back to verse 9. 
The things you have learned, received, heard, and seen in me. Learned, received, heard, and seen in me. When we know that God's grace is at work in another, it is matching the Word of God. In this case, it's the Apostle. We should practice the same. We shouldn't be envious. We shouldn't be jealous. We shouldn't say, well, why is he that way, but I'm not that way? No, ask God to be that way. In whatever virtue, whether it's in self-control, whether it's in knowledge, or whatever it might be, love, kindness, serving one another, we all should be like that and increase. He says, practice these things. If we are not positively practicing, looking for ways and opportunities to practice, actively or positively do so, then the opposite's going to happen. We're going to be envious, bitter, jealous. We're going to be negative. We're going to do the opposite. We're going to be reclusive. We shouldn't be that way. We should do the opposite. Practice what we see correctly before our eyes. And when we do this, the God of peace shall be with you. We want more peace. We want more stability in the midst of affliction, in the midst of anxiety. This is what we should do. Verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, now, at, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked Opportunity. Well, what's he talking about here? Here, from 10 until 20, from 10 to 20, he's talking about how the Philippians were so generous that they sent a gift to him. But he makes it clear he's not looking for the gift itself. He is looking for their godliness through that, that gift. He sees evidence of the work of Christ in them, the work of the Holy Spirit in them through that gift. Because if they just say they care for the apostle, they care for the ministry, they care for the gospel, but they don't do anything, then those are empty words. So this is why he's rejoicing in the Lord greatly. He's rejoicing in the Lord greatly. Why? Because he sees more evidence of God's work in them. Because he says, now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. They were concerned before, but they did not have the means to help. Now they have the means to help, and their concern for the apostle is revived, now that they have means to help. Now the clarification. Verse 11. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. He's not in want. Because even with whatever meager abilities he had, whatever meager resources he had, he had learned in his life to deal with less, to deal with much less. He wasn't used to Opulence. He wasn't used to luxury or prosperity so that 
the moment the prosperity was cut in half or cut by 90%, that he would lose his mind and deny the faith and walk away. No. He learned to be a content man. He learned to be content in whatever circumstances. And he explains the extremes in verse 12. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In, every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. He went a step below want. He went to the category of need. He says, I, I have learned to be content whether I have abundance or I am suffering need. The key is not his circumstances. The key is his heart's attitude before God. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. On a side here, usually if we find this verse quoted, people insert the word Christ, whether it's on a wall hanging or on a calendar or something, or people are repeating the verse, but it actually just says through him. Not that they are distorting it, but it's just a, a reminder. Whenever somebody quotes the Bible, just double check it and make sure what it says exactly lest you be misquoting the Bible yourself. In this case, it's not really a harmful thing because who is the hymn? The hymn is Christ. So there's not, nothing, no harm with it. But in terms of discernment and practice, always double check the references people give you. Always double check the references, the wording, the verbiage of a verse presented to you and make sure that they are quoting it in context. Many times, especially when they are in the Christian bookstore where wall hangings and picture frames and different things are being sold, sometimes those verses are quoted out of context. We have to be careful about that. So our source of strength is Christ himself. Christ himself who has power to raise the dead. He raised his own body up from the dead. He, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. He said, I will raise it up. After you destroy my body, in three days, I will raise it up. This is in John 2, 18 to 22. I will raise it up. No one takes my life away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative, and I take it up on my own initiative. I take it up on my own initiative, he says. So if he's got power over the dead, he certainly has power to help us, and we're not dead. We're not dead. We're alive. Whatever our dilemmas are, he can help us and help us through them. So if we're not trusting him, we're trusting ourselves, our wisdom, and our flesh. Verse 14, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. 
for even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Sometimes the Bible will compare one group of believers to another group of believers. Here, he's comparing the Philippians to the Thessalonians. In fact, also in Acts 17, the Bereans are compared to the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians in the letters to the Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, they are commended, but and they are encouraged to excel still more in chapter 4, 1st Thessalonians 4, excel still more. But if we compare one church with another church, the Philippians are doing better than the Thessalonians in this matter. Because they see the need, they receive the opportunity to meet the need, and they are eager to meet the need. Eager to meet it. More than once, he says, even when I was living in Thessalonica and ministering there among the church people, even you were helping me when I was there. 17. Clarification again. Remember verse 11, he started a clarification. Not that I speak from want, 17. Not that I seek the gift itself. Don't think that I'm after, I'm in it for the money, that I need this money. I'm not worried about that. I already told you, I've learned to be very content in every circumstance. He says, but this is what I wanted. I seek for the profit which increases to your account. He's rejoicing at the thought that they are pleasing to God and God will reward them. His concern is their growth to overcome everything. But I received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma and acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. The gift, he says, has amply supplied his needs. I'm not in want. I don't have any desires like that. Epaphroditus, remember him? Mentioned in chapter 2, 25 to 30. Chapter 2, 25 to 30. This gift was delivered by a reputable believer. Epaphroditus. 2.25 My brother fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger, your messenger, and minister to my need. And this man was so faithful that it says in verse 30, he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. He risked his life for the sake of the gospel. And even to help both the Apostle and the Philippians. Okay, now, the gift itself is a fragrant aroma, acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Because it's coming from a heart that is right with God. These are... These would be applicable, for example, to the sacrifice of Abel... As, a part, as opposed to Cain in Genesis 4. It says that for Abel and his offering, 
he had regard. But for Cain and for his offering, he did not have regard. In Genesis 4, 1 to 10. So, why? Because the heart was right, it was a heart of faith in Abel, and therefore the offering was acceptable. And he presented the right offering. In Cain's case, his heart was not right before the Lord, so his offering was not the acceptable offering either. He didn't bring the best of what he could bring, but Abel did. And here the Philippians do. Verse 19, And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. This is confidence that God will supply all needs. Because God is a God of riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The author, the benefactor, the great provider is God in heaven. Not one another, but God Himself through one another and through other means. He is the one, and He'll make sure to supply all needs. Not all desires, not all wants, not all pleasures, not all luxuries, all needs. And what does that include? With food and with covering, with these we shall be content. With food and covering, with these we shall be content. From 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 10. And his conclusion. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Why attention to God and God's glory? God the Father. Remember in chapter 2, even when Jesus is praised and every knee bows to Him, it's to the glory of God the Father. The Spirit exalts the Son, and the Son exalts the Father. And here, the glory goes to God. And why would He conclude the letter with a, a benediction or a way of glorifying God here? Why would He do that? Because though we get into the particulars of helping one another, being concerned with one another, we're not doing it for our sake, ultimately. We're not doing it for our glory. We do it for God's glory. So then whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we do to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whenever man's glory is the attention, we know it's sin. 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, the brethren who are with me, Greet you. All the saints, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Note here that we have greetings conveyed both ways. He says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. All who are with the apostle and all who are receiving this letter in Philippi, he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The apostle and those with him are greeting everyone there. Which means there's no favoritism. Young and old, rich and poor, 
kings and commoners. Because here he says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Look at that. Caesar's household, do you think that they are wealthy or poor? Probably they're wealthy. They're probably, compared to the others, are going to have more means than the others. And yet here, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. They're eager. The rich are not disdaining the poor, and the poor are not coveting the belongings of the rich. And, and all are greeting one another. That's an important point to make. All from one place are greeting all in another place. And the reciprocal is happening. No favoritism. Everyone is concerned about one another in the Lord. And to this end, we pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Why the grace of God? Because we must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Second Peter 3.18 If we don't have His grace, then we're not going to be helped at all. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, that you, through His poverty, might become rich. Second Corinthians 8.9 We need His grace to not only redeem us from our sins, but to continue to sanctify us so we continually are getting rid of more and more sin. As well as grace for living day by day in this crooked and perverse generation. May this be true of all of us. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.